Hello, Great Minds. It's Friday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History, and another round with the witch-hunting, tobacco-hating king, James I of England. So, welcome to the show, everyone. What will be one of our final episodes of Season 2, God only knows what gems Cullen and Luke have in store for us on their upcoming birthday specials. But I won't lie, after Sherry's birthday special, I am really looking forward to it. And if you haven't come back and listened to that yet, well, then you should totally check out Sherry and I's birthday special, well, Sherry's birthday special on Jane Goodall. On this episode, we are going to make a quick return to the British Isles to revisit our old friend King James I of England, aka James VI of Scotland. If you listen to the Halloween special, which I re-aired for Halloween, surprise, then you know all about James I, Vendetta, and yes, I did choose that word on purpose against witches that supposedly plagued the British Isles during his reign. So James hated witches, hated tobacco, wasn't too keen on Catholics, or women for that matter. It's fair to say James I hated a lot of things, but that made me wonder, who, if anyone, hated James? Before we get into all of that, tonight I had to have a firework cocktail, the ingredients of which surprised, no, annoyed me, and I stole this recipe from Absolute Vodka's website. It's a shot and a half of vodka, and fuck no, I didn't use Absolute, I stuck with my favorite, Sumon, equal parts lemonade and iced tea, garnish with a lime. Which, I don't know, is just a spiked fucking Arnie Palmer. I don't know where they get off calling it a firework, but who really gives a shit? It's called the firework, and that's what I needed for this round of DGMH. So, let's get to it. Another round with King James I of England, as it wouldn't be the bonus season without him. But first, remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and- wait, 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 that's not right. Oh yeah. It's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. So the answer to that question, who hated James, well, it's pretty fair to say Catholics. At least it's going to look that way for some time. And eventually, of course, his parliament, but that's not really part of the story for today. Setting the scene a little here, it's 1603 and James VI of Scotland has been ruling, well, you know, Scotland since his mother Mary, Queen of Scots, abdicated the throne in 1567. He himself being born in 1566, a little one-year-old boy, King James, ascended to the throne and now decades later, all by chance, Elizabeth's desire not to marry and a lot of political scheming, he has found himself crowned king once again, but this time on the throne of a much larger, more rapidly growing and more powerful kingdom. England. Although not really called the United Kingdom until 1707 and later more officially expanding in 1801, James I's coronation was very much a step towards the modern UK. As a Protestant, more specifically a Presbyterian, James was a good, albeit not perfect, fit to head up the Church of England and keep the nation's Protestant traditions alive and going after nearly a century of infighting over the religious orientation of the English state. When James ascended to the throne after the very long, very Protestant reign of Elizabeth I, many English Catholics were hoping that he might offer them a greater degree of tolerance, something they had not really seen under Elizabeth I's reign. Which at first he kind of did. While James was certainly more lenient than his predecessor, even pledging not to persecute those who practice Catholicism in private and follow the rule of law, that all went to hell pretty quickly. James, like his grandson Charlie II, was quite the survivor, dealing with several attempts by English Catholics to depose him in the earliest years of his reign, including a surprise team up here, the Catholic and Puritan-led 
by plot to kidnap the king and guarantee toleration for both groups, followed by the connected main plot to depose the king and replace James with Lady Arabella Stuart, another claimant to the English throne. But in the end, James managed to circumnavigate these early crises. It was, however, in 1605 that the most famous attempt to depose the king, this time by disposing of the king, unraveled almost as fast as it began. Here I am talking about the infamous gunpowder treason and plot, which honestly ought never be forgot. This plot nearly upended the English government on November 5th, 1605, just two years into James's English kingship. So a simple definition, the gunpowder plot was a plan to blow up Parliament while the king was present in a sort of two birds, one massive explosion kind of way, thus ridding the kingdom of Protestant influence and returning the British Isles to the Catholic fold. The most famous conspirator tied to the failed assassination of King James I is the man that was caught at the scene of the would-be crime, Guy Fawkes. Fox, a Catholic veteran of the still-raging Eighty Years' War, where he fought for Spain against the Dutch, joined up with several other conspirators to see through their devious plans. I won't be going too deep into the plot itself, I mean it's simple, blow up Parliament with the king inside, king dies, then somehow, with no real government remaining, toleration to Catholics will magically be guaranteed, like hell it will. But I will say Guy Fox, also known as John Johnson in this story, the single most shitty pseudonym I've ever heard, was not the most radical nor the architect of the conspirators. He is just the one that got caught first and kind of, you know, quote, red-handed in the undercroft beneath Parliament that was leased by our would-be assassins. Now some of you are probably wondering why, what, mm. Now some of you are probably, mm, <laughs> that's a tough word. Now, some of you are probably wondering what all of these angry little Catholics were going to do with England once they destroyed Protestantism, committed regicide, and destroyed the main body of government. Well, they had a pretty simple goal in mind. Reboot. The Catholics would install the young Princess Elizabeth, James I's daughter, on the English throne as a Catholic monarch, which she technically wasn't, but I'm guessing that was a pious problem they would address down the road to England's spiritual redemption. However, in early November, an anonymous letter was sent to William Parker, the fourth Baron of Monteagle, warning him to avoid the opening ceremony of Parliament, and this was the beginning of the end for the gunpowder plot. The Monteagle letter said, quote, My lord, out of the love I have for some of your friends, I want to make sure you are safe. Because of this, I would advise you not to attend this sitting of Parliament, because God and man have agreed to punish the wickedness of this time. Do not think this a joke. Go to your estate in the country where you will be safe. Because although there is no sign of any problem yet, this parliament will receive a terrible blow, but they will not see who it is that hurts them. This advice should not be ignored, as it may do you some good. And it can do you no harm, because the danger will have passed as soon as you have burned this letter. When the letter was taken to the king's men, James immediately focused on the word blow, as an indicator of the nature of the attack. Searches of parliament quickly ensued, and large tracks of firewood and gunpowder were found beneath the building. Fox, the man who was going to light the fuse, was arrested and the plot essentially stopped. Immediately after thwarting the gunpowder plot, the hunt was on for the fleeing conspirators. Of course, Fox and everyone involved was tracked down, tortured, and or eventually killed or executed in the process or days following the events. Almost simultaneously with his surprising survival, it was decreed by the king himself that bonfires could and maybe should be held throughout the city of London to celebrate his, I guess, life. This actually grew into a regular holiday celebration that goes by several names. Guy Fawkes Day, Guy Fawkes Night, Bonfire Night, and Fireworks Night. And that brings us to the topic of today, because regardless of what you call it, that day is today.
Historian Darren Aldridge notes, quote, The first bonfire night was held in the streets of London on November 5th, 1605, in a hastily written proclamation after foiling the plot to kill King James and his parliament. The Royal Council licensed the lighting of celebratory bonfires so long as it was done without any danger or disorder. And that pretty much stuck. The day continued to be a truly anti-Catholic celebration and a sort of Thanksgiving holiday that was solidified with the passage of the, quote, Observance of the 5th of November Act, 1605, passed the following year. The act itself is pretty telling about what its initial observers would be celebrating, stating, quote, Many malignant and devilish papists, Jesuits, and seminary priests conspired most horribly to have blown up the whole House of Parliament with gunpowder. But this would change when the act was repealed in 1859 due to its clear and aggressive anti-Catholic language, which went against changing policies and mindsets in the mid-19th century. More recently, the holiday gets somewhat overshadowed by the growing observance of Halloween and the Day of the Dead. Ironically, Guy Fawkes' name is attached to a holiday originally celebrating the survival of the king and his government, Yet today, Fox has become a symbol of anti-establishment and anti-government. Now in all that, there was one thing that really piqued my interest. That is Elizabeth, the young queen that Catholics desired and conspired to use as a puppet to re-establish their pontifically perfect Catholic English state. And her story is every bit as dynamic and exciting as her father's, yet far less discussed. So fuck it, let's just discuss it right now. Elizabeth Stuart was the eldest surviving child of Anne of Denmark and King James I, born when he was just King James VI, King of Scots. Of course, she fits into our story as the desired potential Catholic queen, Catholic queen, Catholic Queen of England that would have been installed had the gunpowder plot succeeded. On a side note, and directly connected to that last statement, historian Ronald Hutton notes that the plan couldn't have succeeded at all, as the gunpowder had sat too long. And in attempting to light the gunpowder, it would have done little more than doused Fox's flame. Hutton says, quote, The reason why the plot was a guaranteed failure was simply that the powder would not have blown. But back to Elizabeth. She never did become Queen of England, nor did she become Catholic. But that doesn't mean she didn't find her way to royalty and religious conflict elsewhere. In February 1613, Valentine's Day actually, Elizabeth was wed in Whitehall Palace to Frederick V, Elector of the Palatinate a principality of the HRE. We won't concern ourselves much with her time as a German electress, but instead her brief tenure as a queen. On the onset of the Thirty Years' War, and this is a gross oversimplification of one of the most dynamic, confusing, and devastating wars in human history to be covered more thoroughly in Season 3, by the way, Frederick was elected King of Bohemia after a bunch of Catholics were thrown out of a window, and he and Elizabeth aimed to defend their new royal titles till the end but their plans were crushed at the Battle of White Mountain. Elizabeth's short-lived queenship came to an abrupt end, and the pair were forced into exile in the Netherlands. Ruling for only one brief winter, Frederick is commonly known as the Winter King, Elizabeth his Winter Queen. While in exile, Elizabeth was, quote, one of the foremost power brokers for the Protestant cause in Europe. It's funny, but in the end, she became kind of the opposite of what Fox and friends were hoping for. Frederick died of gout in 1632, and Elizabeth lived out most of her days in the Dutch Republic, until finally returning to England when her nephew King Charles II was restored to the throne. There, she would spend her last years dying in 1662. Her son, Prince Rupert of the Rhine, a hero of the English Civil Wars, who we have mentioned before, was one of the most badass people in 17th century Europe. And on another interesting note, and without getting into the messy reigns of the later Stuarts, when Queen Anne, the last Stuart monarch, passed, the throne passed to her Hanoverian cousins. 
that is, George I of House Hanover, Elizabeth's grandson. In the end, it was her direct and very Protestant descendants that would rule Britain for more than a century. Well, I'd say that's about enough, so let's wrap this one up. On the topic of Bonfire Day, one journalist questioned the nature of England's Guy Fawkes celebrations, calling it, quote, strange patriotism. If you are in fact actually listening to this on the 5th of November, then Britons across the British Isles will likely be holding parades, lighting bonfires, burning effigies of Guy Fawkes, and setting off loads of fireworks. And it seems the meaning behind the celebrations has changed a great deal over the last four centuries. Guy Fawkes Night has been immortalized in my life thanks to the movie V for Vendetta, but it always amazes me how many people haven't seen this fantastic film. Change that, watch it tonight, embrace the Guy Fawkes. But if you don't, I will say this. It's a story of the oppressed rising up against authoritarian and arbitrary rule, with the ultimate act taking place on an anniversary of Guy Fawkes Day. This still leaves us with the question, what are Britons actually celebrating? Is it the survival of Protestantism? Is it still anti-Catholic for some? I doubt that. Maybe instead, however, the celebration continues on and is about celebrating English traditions of democracy. Popery, the catalyst for the plot, was often associated with, quote, arbitrary rule and notions of despotism and absolutism. In thwarting this popish plot on November 5th, Britain stood up against exactly that, arbitrary rule. The seeds of discontent with popery and poor leadership were planted on English soil on November 5th, 1605. From my inexperienced, yet fairly objective, American perspective, the day has evolved into a symbolic celebration against anything that seemed too popish or too arbitrary, even if eventually that came to include the monarchy itself. In a way, the day has transformed into a celebration of the roots of English constitutionalism. I can't help but empathize with the English in a way that I had not previously been able, as Catholics literally tried to blow up Parliament and commit regicide in the name of Catholic God, which is oh so different than Protestant God. It's no surprise that everyone in England feared the dread popish plot by the time Charlie II sat on the throne. Well, that's it. If you enjoyed this episode of Drinks with Great Minds in History, then you will love the fun content that we put out weekly over on the DGMH Patreon page. Their listeners can get access to all sorts of document discussions, psychology chats, bonus shots BS sessions, and pre-game content. Just follow the link in the show notes to support the show and get access to even more great content. If you love the show, then please consider leaving DGMH a great, hopefully five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It really supposedly maybe helps, so yeah, please go and do it. We'd really appreciate it. As we wrap up the season, I will be putting out two more birthday specials and one more bonus episode to close out this beautiful shit show of a season by Thanksgiving. Or was it Franksgiving? Either way, let's wrap this up with a quick drink rating. The firework, of course chosen to represent the big boom that never happened on the 5th of November, and the countless fireworks that Britons have set off since in remembrance of the failed gunpowder plot, I won't be rating this drink itself as I am way too pissed at the fact that this is just a hard Arnie Palmer. Still, it's very good. I would definitely have another any day that someone made it for me. But I will share a funny story. I once got the genius idea in my head to mix straight Carolina sweet tea vodka with straight Carolina lemonade vodka to make the hardest of hard Arnie Palmers, or fucking firework cocktails, in human fucking history. Was it good? Absolutely. Was it a good idea? Absolutely not. But who cares? It was fun at the time. Well, let's raise a glass to James I. According to a Times article, in 2005, the 400-year anniversary of the gunpowder treason and plot, it was decided that a perfect replica of Parliament should be constructed under Crofts and all, just to be blown up to test the potential devastation of the explosion. 
The experiment revealed that Parliament would have been all but destroyed, the stained glass windows of Westminster Cathedral would have been shattered, and anyone within 300 feet would have most certainly perished. Everyone in the House of Lords would have immediately died, and on a very dark but somewhat humorous note, the article notes that the head of the dummy representing King James I, sitting on his throne in Parliament as he would have been that night, was found, quote, quite a distance from the blast site. But James, in the end, you survived, your daughter survived, and your son would not be so lucky. So let's close this episode with the very rhyme I aim to start it with. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. And now, maybe you won't forget it. Cheers. <laughs>